Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. January 2022 marks the 200th issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. To celebrate the occasion, we asked astronomers and regular contributors Pete Lawrence and Paul Abel to take a look back at some of their favourite astronomical observing events since the first issue launched way back in June 2005. All right, Pete, here we are celebrating the 200th issue of the Sky at Night magazine. Incredible. It is incredible. And we have seen many observing highlights. And when, you know, when Chris got in touch, the editor said, could we do this? I thought, what on earth are we going to, how many events are we going to be able to put in? And then when I sat down and thought about it, there's actually been quite a lot of stuff that has happened observing-wise, hasn't there? Well, an enormous amount of stuff. The magazine started in um, the middle of 2005, of course. And they're just that's a long time in astronomy and actually i'm more concerned about leaving things out uh, there are, the more you, do, you you go into it the more stuff there is so why don't we start then you you pick out a highlight you particularly enjoyed Okay, well, I'm going to go with something fairly recent first, uh, and that is Comet Nearwise. Oh, okay. um, for, for me, I thought this was one of the best sort of, uh, of comets, naked eye comets, uh, since Hale-Bopp for UK skies, because it was really well placed. It coincided with lockdown, so we were all at home, True. and the weather was really, really good. Do you remember, we had that unprecedented long spell of clear nights. And for me, I think this was better... 
uh, as good as as Hail Bob. It was that it's been that long since for for me I've seen a bright naked eye comet. I know we have had. I think Minort was uh, was that a good, that was a good comet. But you you saw the tail of that from Selzy, but it didn't actually climb high up. This is the first one we've had for a while. Yeah, P one Minort. That was oh crikey, that's going back a bit. Is that two thousand six? Around that time, I think it's a while ago now. Yeah, yeah. that was. Um, that was quite impressive. We got a good view of it. In fact, that comet, I took a photograph of it during daylight. Um, so that's another highlight. I haven't got that on my list. So thanks for bringing that one up. Uh, but yeah, it, it went into a spectacular outburst when it went into the southern skies. And the um, the tail exhibited those striations you get, which are called synchronic bands. And yes. I, I figured out that some of the stars I could see in the wonderful pictures from the southern hemisphere, you could see from the northern hemisphere. So I went down to the beach at Selsey, where I lived, and um, I was able to pick up some of those synchronic bands. But the comet which really stands out for me is um, had an outburst at the end of 2007 into 2008, and that's Comet 17P Holmes. Do you remember Yes, that now that was, I do, and it was quite greenish, officially, it looked quite greenish, and it looked rather like a fried egg in the eyes. Oh, it was, it was really peculiar. I remember observing that with Patrick, actually, and he said, um, it's just peculiar. And, and it was, it looked like a dinner plate. Yeah, it, it spread out. Do you remember as it continued expanding, but it dimmed quite rapidly. The, the larger it got, the fainter it got. And so you had a situation where it was really subtending quite a large diameter in the sky. Yeah. But it was almost virtually impossible to pick up visually. Absolutely. Although, of course, long scale pictures brought it out well. Yeah. Well, I'll go on to my, um, my, my event, my event, which I want to mention next which is actually an odd thing because people often ask me what are the best things I've ever seen in the night sky and it's difficult to actually say any one particular thing one thing that did stand out I don't know if you recall we went to um the Kielder Observatory in Northumberland oh that was so cold (laughs) it was so cold but we went there to try and see an asteroid which was doing a close pass of the earth and uh, oh, I remember yes. it was quite windy and it was very dark skies. And I had my binoculars up and I managed to locate the area where it was. It was the, the asteroid was called 2012 DA14. I remember. And that was uh, 15th February 2013, would you believe? And I remember seeing it. And I definitely saw it because it moved against the star field. And do you know what? It's really struck me at that point that I'd never really seen anything other than a meteor or the aurora actually physically moving against the stars, which was a natural um, object, not satellites or whatever. Um, so it was. It just stood out, and it's really stayed with me throughout the years, that one. I remember that. Uh, we were filming the Sky at Night. We was, and I remember you directed us how to find it. John Coulter was there. I think all three of us did manage to get it in binoculars at one point. And then somebody asked me something, and I just momentarily turned away, and then I lost it. I couldn't recover it after that. But it was quite striking, because what surprised me was the speed in which it was moving, because I thought it was going to be much slower uh, uh, moving in the night sky, but it wasn't. It was, uh, it was quite a speedy object. Yes, it was indeed. 
Okay, what's uh, Shall we tell? Well, hang on. I think we should tell them the story about when we were, as we were driving up there. So, viewers <laughs> don't know this. Uh, I don't drive. Patrick Moore made me make an agreement because he thought the idea of me behind the wheel of a car was far too terrifying. So, I have a gentleman's agreement with him still that uh, I'll never learn to drive. But Pete does. Whenever we go and do things, Pete drives us there. But Pete, and I think it's fair to say, you are quite dependent on the sat nav. Oh, and yes. when we got up to Kielden, we were looking for the place we were filming, and it wasn't in the sat nav. Do you remember we asked that chap in the pub and he gave directions that were really good, except how he missed a right turn by the river <laughs> and a left turn going up the hill. And it's the first time I've ever seen you uh, really get crossed whenever I've been in the car with you. And I, uh, we, the, we remember we'd driven down to that wilderness and I said to you, Pete, I don't think this is right. And you just went, I can tell this isn't right, you idiot. Shut up. <laughs> I deserved that. But it was quite amusing, wasn't it? It took quite some time to I, to I say that down. to you all the time though <laughs> <laughs> i probably deserve it but uh yeah and pete's still dependent on a sat nav so absolutely all right shall we shall we move on to the next object Go on, then. okay well for me again this is fairly recent uh, this was the mars opposition we had last year in 2020 now obviously we've both seen a lot of Mars oppositions. You've seen a lot more of them than me, in fact. But the reason this is special for me is because it was the first year I had my own large telescope. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know how it is. You spend a long time with the sort of middling six to eight inch telescope and you get as far as you can with them. But after about a decade, you know, you are ready to move on. Yes. Uh, and, and I have access to the university telescope, which is a huge telescope. But there is something, it's almost like a, uh, a big turning point in your observing career when you have access to you have your own big telescope and i just got this 12 inch newtonian uh and we had a run of clear nights up towards opposition and i had some of the most fantastic views of mars in my life and i was able to use powers of time 600 wow and it was honestly it looked like one of yours or damien's images in front of the ipad the amount of detail and i made 78 color drawings of mars two maps, and I charted a dust storm that erupted. It's the most intense period of work I'd ever done on Mars because I had access to a big telescope. It's, it's so, an amazing fantastic. planet once you get going with it. Once you've got a good run, it really um, it really draws you in. I do remember one opposition um, where I, I did get into that state. So the telescope was set up. I could set it up really quickly outside. And off I'd go. And some nights you had absolutely crystal clear, steady seeing. And it's just incredible. It's like looking at an image as you described. But I do remember uh, there was, I had an issue with my imaging chip because there was a little mite that was living on it. <laughs> and and, it, and this, this creature. That only could happen to you. Well, this, uh, that is unique to you. This creature obviously liked to bathe in Mars light. Because every time <laughs> I put the telescope on Mars, it would crawl across the chip and sit <laughs> right in the middle of the image. And so I'd have to continually move the image around on the sensor or Mars around on the sensor to try and avoid this damn creature getting in the way. <laughs> and it was really quite persistent. And when you looked at it with a naked eye, you couldn't really see it. It was so small. So that was I do remember that quite distinctively. 
Um, but talking of the planets, that moves me on to my next event, which was um, well, actually right at the very beginning of the sort of period when the magazine was getting going back in 2007, um, because there were a number of interesting lunar occultations occurring at that time. Oh, yes, um, yes. So in March, on the 2nd of March 2007, Saturn uh, was grazed by the moon. So only from where my location was at the time in Selzy, uh, only part of the planet was actually clipped by the edge of the moon, which led to some quite nice images. 22nd of May 2007, Saturn was properly occulted. And in on the 18th of June 2007, it was Venus that was occulted by the moon. So we had that really good run of planetary planets disappearing behind the moon's disk, which hasn't really happened since. But having mentioned that, something to look forward to at the end of this year, 2022, there we have two occultations of Uranus and an occultation of Mars coming up. So that'll be Yeah, the one on Mars is quite good because that happens on our position morning, doesn't it? It so, does, yes. Uh, that will be good. It's, it's quite interesting you mentioned all those occultations. I remember them because um, I was quite an active observer uh, in the late 90s. And then in 99, I went to university uh, as an undergrad in the maths department. And I kind of, you know how it is when you go to university, you kind of lose touch with things. And so I, I sort of lost touch with amateur astronomy. It wasn't until I started my PhD in 2005 that I came back into astronomy. And that's when the magazine had just started going. So I picked up this new magazine uh, and became a regular buyer of it. And then I thought, well, actually, I'm going to I'm gonna get back into astronomy. And uh, that's when I got going again. And then we oh, had right. all these events. I don't think we met until 2007, though, if I remember rightly. I it think seems like when... a lot longer. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> but yes, we've got so occultations uh, to look forward to this year. Um, moving on then to one of to one of mine. Uh, well, actually, this includes the pair of us. This one. Um, it was the trip on the Boudicca that was uh, this was oh, the yes. ship that we that we were both you, John Coulter, and myself. We were guest lecturers on. It was the trip out to see the total eclipse in the uh, twenty fifteen, wasn't it? Twenty fifteen, wasn't it? And near, near the Faroe Islands. Yeah. This was the first time I had ever seen a total eclipse of the sun, and it very nearly didn't happen. Do you remember the weather, Pete? Just how touch and go it was, literally to half an hour before the uh, the eclipse. Well, it was. I, I took on a bit of a responsibility there because I, I had a good rapport with the captain, and I um, actually we had a, various meetings about where we were going to view the eclipse. And I, I do remember the first time I met him; he had had a bit of a reputation as captain of being a bit standoffish. Uh, but we managed to get a meeting. And the first thing he said to me was, before we do anything else, we just agree there is no blame, okay? <laughs> so so he, he obviously knew what the uh, Norwegian Sea was like in March. So we had this agreement. And the night before the eclipse itself, I can remember looking at this weather band expanding and the location we'd picked would have been right underneath it. So I, right. I emailed him and sent him an email saying we need to go further north and he, i understand that he was actually in bed and he got up fairly early in the morning and saw the email and it was like he'd put his foot on the accelerator because the ship was just pounding through the waves and i can remember getting up early morning there was thick snow coming down on the deck of the ship it was cold and, it was horrible and people yeah. were walking past going 
don't worry, Pete, it's not your fault. And I thought, well, that <laughs> hasn't happened yet. And then as as it got closer, um, of course, the, the structure appeared in the clouds. Then suddenly the clouds began, began to break up. And yeah. we got to see the whole of totality. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We did. And I think we were the only ship, because there was a couple of other ships, do you remember, that stayed behind? There were a lot and of they, ships there, yeah. And they, they didn't move. They, I think the captain did radio your new coordinates, and we, uh, they didn't move, and they, got, they were clouded out. We were one of the few people, I think, to see it up there. I think there was one uh, other ship that saw it. And we were so lucky. I, I, I could still see uh, in my mind's eye that it's almost an absurd image of a brilliant black circle yeah, in the sky. Right. It's a very difficult thing to explain, uh, but it, it felt like we worked so very hard. Remember, it was only 10 in the morning after it had happened. We went and got champagne and celebrated it. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I, I've seen a number of eclipses, obviously, over the 200 issues of the um, Sky at Night magazine and solar eclipses. My first a proper it's not, it wasn't a total it was an annular eclipse was um in madrid with the sky at night filming on the 3rd of october 2005 where we set up in this um this park with a it had a planetarium in it and we picked our spot at some ridiculous hour in the morning before the sun had come up i was wearing shorts and i was absolutely frozen um because the days were really warm but the nights weren't so warm so i learned a lesson there but yeah we got to see a a really lovely annular eclipse my first uh there and then next year 2006 on march the 29th i took a group it was about 1600 people if i remember correctly to turkey um, oh, yes. where we got a beautiful view of a spectacular total eclipse that was my first proper view of a total eclipse of the sun and i can still remember that feeling of looking up at the eclipse and feeling the cold with the moon in front of the sun and thinking crikey we are pretty insignificant on this planet but that actually it reminds me of an imaging um, issue because i had a Canon 10D at the time, which was a fairly old DSLR by today's standards, obviously. And I was a bit nervous about taking the filter off the front of the telescope um, so that I could take pictures of totality unfiltered, which is what you have to do. And I didn't know when you could do it. So I made a judgment call and pulled the filter off and was pressing the shutter button and the camera stopped working. And I thought, oh, no, the, the shutter has fused together. 
And as I was thinking that, the camera went click and then click. And it was the buffer that had filled up. And I was pressing the remote shutter button so many times that the camera didn't have capacity (laughs) to hold all of those images. There's two other things I remember about that Boudicca trip, Pete. Uh, Firstly, uh, uh, is how much, I didn't realise just how much Star Trek terminology was borrowed from uh, from uh, nautical stuff because <laughs> do you remember we were in the bay and we weren't moving very quickly and you said we're not going to get to the rendezvous coordinates for the uh, for the eclipse if we're not careful and I said well go and find out what's happening and I and I went up to one of the stewards and I said uh, can't help but notice we're a bit behind schedule and without a beat he said yeah the transport is malfunctioning we can't get the uh, landing party <laughs> aboard said, wait what and it turns out you remember those little light those little ships they launched to get you to the, uh, the 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 land when we moored out at sea. Yeah. Those were called transporters, and apparently one of them, the engines, was having difficulty and they couldn't moor it up. So that was that. And there was also, do you remember, the Force 12 in the North Sea? Oh, yes. Yes. That was truly horrific, terrifying. Uh, that's, uh, that's, I mean, I've had, ba- I've, I've had bad air turbulence. I've experienced that before, but a Force 12 in the North Sea. Well, that was where oh. we, we were actually um, sailing along with the wind. And that was fine because the ship was just going up and down and you kept feeling as if you were going to fall out of bed. But then at some point, the captain actually had to turn to get into port. So he tried to, t- to time it with the waves and um, he couldn't quite get it right because <laughs> the frequency of the waves were too high. So as he turned to go into port, we did list quite a lot and quite a lot of people did fall out of bed when that occurred. Yeah, I was out of bed uh, praying already, so it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. But I, I, I still thank this day that I had a trusty bottle of gin with me. I don't know how I would have got through the night without it. <laughs> okay, well, talk, oh. talking about eclipses, then we've had a couple of uh, or a number of uh, lunar eclipses, of course, mm. over the period where the magazine has been um, in circulation. But two recent ones stand out pretty well for me. I remember one in uh, 2015 on September the 28th, which we did from a a mutual friend of ours, uh, Meadow, in Ham, which is just outside of Selsey. He kindly let us use his Meadow because it had really good horizons. But I can remember I, I was actually working for the BBC at the time as well because I had to get some footage for a show called Forces of Nature. And so I... I decided to take quite a lot of equipment to get multiple shots. And I I drove us over there and dropped all the kit off, a whole carload of kit, and then went back home and picked up another carload of kit and brought that over with me as well. So I should point out, all the kit I had was a notebook and a pencil. Uh, you're the one that filled the car up with kit. Twice. Do you remember how low the car was on the road? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that was that was good. And then we had another one uh, four years or three and a half years, I guess, later, on January the 21st, 2019. Do you remember that one where I, I, do. I picked you up and we came back to Selsey? And it was beautifully clear for that one. It was. Uh, it was also really cold. <laughs> uh, but it was, uh, that was, as I recall, the, the colour was quite strong with that one. Uh, it, it was quite a good orange tint to the moon. It was also quite a dark eclipse, I think. Um, they always vary, don't they, in terms of how orange the, the moon goes or how dark it goes at totality, yes. uh, depending on all sorts of things. And that was my recollection of that. But yeah, it was uh, that was quite a good one. But as I say, I remember we made lots of cups of tea because it was quite cold 
It was very cold. Not as cold as the one I did for Sky at Night on Selsey Beach during a winter. That was the, I can't remember what year that was, but it was um, the winter solstice. There was a... Oh, I remember you doing that because oh, you went down and did it on your own the, and you were freezing to death on Selsey Beach on a January morning. Well, oh. well there was, no, it's December. It was it was midwinter's December, day yeah. and it was ba- yeah, basically yeah. the sea um, was up on the seawall and it froze. And at one point, I had to give a um, an interview with Chris Lintot, who was in Chicago. And the cameraman said, it's not working with your gloves, Pete. Can you take your gloves off so you can hold your phone properly? And um, I don't think I've ever been so cold in my life. I can remember our friend John Colshaw watching that and saying, you weren't faking that, were you? <laughs> no, I think you were incredibly, uh, incredibly cold. I couldn't have, couldn't have done that. I remember just how cold Selsey Beach used to get. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, let's move back out to the solar system then because I have another event that uh, we both saw. Uh, I think you might even have some images of it. And that was of that very, very unusual storm that appeared on Saturn in December 2020. Uh, in December 2010. Do you remember that? I do remember that, yes. Was that the dragon storm? Yeah, this was the dragon storm. So Saturn is uh, kind of like a quieter version of Jupiter, but it does have these big, bright, wide oval storms. And what normally happens is you get about every 30 years, not exactly, but almost, uh, these bright ovals, a big bright oval that erupts in Saturn's equator, equatorial zone. It becomes very bright, and then it spreads around the whole equatorial zone, which brightens up and then goes back to normal. But this one was a storm that didn't do that. It started off in the northern hemisphere, in Saturn's north temperate zone. It started off, uh, it was first detected on the 5th of December. I think Anthony Wesley was the first person to image it. But the Cassini spacecraft was also in orbit around Saturn and was there just by good luck and managed to record this storm outbreaking. It recorded all this rapid thunder I and remember, lightning. Yeah. And, and then it extended around the north temperate zone and became, it almost had like a cometary light look. It looked like it had a bright it nucleus did. of the tail. Yeah. And it was, uh, it took a while. We had a, typically it was quite cloudy in Leicester that year. Uh, my first observation, it wasn't until later, about 12th of May. But I had a beautiful view of it with my 8-inch reflector, and I put a blue filter on, and it really was a very unusual-looking thing. And it just stands in my mind as uh, quite an unusual event on Saturn. It wasn't the usual standard white oval. It wasn't out. It was outside the usual 30-year period. And there's never been anything before or like it since. It was, it was quite an astounding phenomenon. Incredible. In fact, that reminds me of the... Um, when was that? Was it 2010 when, on Jupiter... It lost one of its main belts. It lost the South Equatorial belt. It just disappeared, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. Jupiter undergoes these kinds of phenomena. It's called an SEB fading and revival. And the Southern Equatorial belt... uh, fades away and the great red spot becomes really dark and intense and then months month, sometimes a year or more later you get these kind of eruptions breaking out where the southern equatorial belt used to be and they join up and the southern equatorial belt reforms it's most mysterious quite amazing isn't it well sticking with the planets for the next item uh, i wanted to bring up Um, This is to do with transits, actually. We had a transit back uh, in 2004 of Venus, but we also had one in 2012 on June the 6th where Sky Knight went to Svalbard 
to try and get a view of the last transit of Venus that we'll see in our lifetimes. And I do remember that because the day before, it was absolutely beautiful, clear sky. And I thought, yep, we're going to get this, no problem at all. And I managed to um, get with um, my telescope outside of the accommodation block on very rough gravel, I remember, because I was kneeling down on it. And with a cloth over my head, I managed to get a view of Venus, where I virtually got the atmospheric ring, you know, where the, the atmosphere oh, yes. appears, all the cusps of the crescent of Venus extend almost all the way around. Um, but we did get a, a lovely view of the transit in the end, even though it completely clouded over the next day. And <laughs> it, was very, it was very touch and go. I do remember my Sky at Night colleague, Chris Lintot, he obviously, he knows me fairly well. And I was being interviewed at the time. And Chris said, right, I can see Pete's now focusing on the gaps which are coming, so I'm going to leave him alone. And that's, that's exactly the right thing, because I was off then trying to get Venus through these gaps. But it was, um, it was quite an amazing event. Now, the atmospheric ring, of course, uh, I've been trying to get that for most of my life, because I remember seeing a picture of it in a book by um, James Young, had taken it and it was it was quite an astonishing thing it's one of those pictures which really inspired me to get into astronomy and on the 2nd of June 2020 I've been following Venus getting closer and closer to the sun and more and more crescent shaped and on that particular morning I can remember having this ridiculous cardboard structure on the front of my telescope to block the sun's light coming directly down it and I managed to capture Venus through all the pollen which was um, being forwards for doing forward scattering so there was lots of light in the field of view but I managed to get it and take a high frame rate shot of it and got the entire atmospheric ring so that was almost like a, a lifetime's achievement for me in astronomy. So I was very, very pleased with that. Well, I remember that 2012 uh, transit of Venus because, uh, well, I stayed behind with Patrick uh, and we actually, we were one of the very few observers who actually viewed it from the UK. Uh, I, it was really touch and go right into the last minute. Uh, we took John Coleshaw, myself, and a number of other uh, dear friends, we all went down to Selsey Beach with Patrick, uh, pushing along in the chair. I remember doing this at, it was sort of like four or five in the morning. It was all very deserted. And just at the right moment, we had a big gap in the clouds and we were able to see the transit. Patrick got a, a view of it uh, through, the, through the telescope we'd set up. And I think that must have been the last astronomical event he ever saw. So uh, I thought wow. it was quite quite a touching uh, thing yes, to have. Absolutely. And luckily, so lucky to have been able to see it because not long after, it clouded over and we decamped back at Farthings. I think a few people were quite surprised to be offered champagne and cake with Patrick at six in the morning, <laughs> but uh, uh, it felt like quite an achievement. So uh, I felt that that was a, a well-earned event. Well, I guess we better bring it to an end because uh, we could talk about this stuff for hours, but it's been a pretty spectacular 200 issues of the magazine's worth of events in the night sky. So I'm looking forward to what the next 200 issues brings. Yes, who knows what we'll see in the next 200 issues. Uh, there's all sorts of fascinating observational things to come. And who knows, maybe in the next one of the next 200 issues, we'll have news of the discovery of life on Mars or Europa. So all sorts of fascinating things could happen. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.